APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Nicole Nesberg, Megizi Miguan, history faculty in the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. And today our conversation is about American Indians and importance of representation. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you, Bjorn. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. And so this really jumps into our first question, always an important topic. And so what are your thoughts on Deb Holland, the first American Indian to hold a cabinet position? And in addition to that, why is representation important? I'm very excited with the current administration, the inclusion of Deb Holland. She's just a incredibly active individual in the Department of Interior. She has thus far helped get into place the first Native American head of the National Park Service, also working on name changes, one of which we can talk about today. And I think it showcases for many people that we are once again still here. I think it gets forgotten on occasion, and I'm fortunate enough to work in a history department where I get to talk a lot about my people and our history and include that personal experience that I have. Excellent. Now, do you have any examples of different name changes? I mean, just in the last year, I believe Washington is now just Washington, which is a wonderful name change. You know, I remember the, quote, controversy of the name chamber where people are like, well, it's this, it's that. It's like, but we're not 70 years ago anymore. So to change the name is the right thing to do. Can you comment on that or other name changes? Yeah. In Colorado, Squaw Mountain became Miss Dahet, a woman mountain in honor of a woman, a Cheyenne woman, who kind of was in that border territory between her native people and, and white settlers. So that was a beautiful name change. And I know that she's going to be working further across the United States with those geographic name changes. As you mentioned, the Washington football team, I really didn't think in my lifetime that would take place. It's been a long, decades-long fight. And then a year after, right on the anniversary, the Cleveland Guardians changed their name, the baseball team. This is an ongoing process. I was fortunate. I have a really good friend, another advocate in Mason, Iowa. Her name's Leanne Clausen de Montes, and her and her son Salvador spoke publicly to get their name changed from the Mohawk mascot, which they took that name away. Um, but it continues to be a really divisive issue. In Connecticut, just a couple days ago, a fistfight broke out because they changed their name from the Tomahawk to the Guardian. And even in a couple hours tonight, they're going to re-vote on bringing that name back. It makes it important to have these discussions on why people would get to the point of physical violence over, you know, mascot names, geographic names. It's kind of an ongoing process, what I consider progress in this nation. What we first mentioned, representation, and then that respect of other peoples, recognizing that for not all people, mascots are viewed as honorary or something that honors people. Also viewing these name changes, it doesn't have to be seen as something negative. For example, when Mount McKinley was renamed Denali, which was its original name, I think a lot of people are used to that now and it recognizes the Inuit people and the First Nations people up in Alaska. And those are excellent examples, especially with name changes. Oftentimes, original names, especially if the names were 
of Native Americans or indigenous, you know, back in the day, uh, they were oftentimes not really probably well thought out, <laughs> usually guided by misconceptions or stereotypes, honestly. If you look at the movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, they are artifacts of a different time in which obviously no movies would ever be made like that again for good reason. So here's a question for those people that are like, well, what's wrong with the name? Or to use the example of like the Vikings, where somebody might say, well, isn't the Vikings offensive? And so why would we have to change other names? How would you respond to that? First, having just the conversation is important to even just bring up to have an open dialogue about different cultures and how they feel about different names. And this goes right to the heart of these mascots and the, the name changes and why it's important. While some people do say, I do know American Indians that don't have a problem with these names whatsoever. And that's totally justified and legitimate for their opinions. But hopefully they can also see the bigger picture that it's not always just the names. It's also how the fan base uses that, the stereotyping one sees. Just last month, I went to um, the University of Florida, Florida State football game, and there were representations there I was not pleased with, nor did I feel honored. And so maybe having that bigger, wide opening experience of seeing other people that one hasn't seen before, respecting other people that one forgets about, it just creates a more inclusive nation and a better community. And I love that you said, you know, just having the conversation is important because you always encounter people who basically don't think anything is important. But then oftentimes those people will not have had good conversations with people who say are part of tribes or anything like that. As someone myself of like Scandinavian descent with the Vikings and stuff like that, it's not like the U.S. went over to Sweden and colonialized Sweden and Norway, they're literally just taking a figure from essentially a foreign country and just saying, hey, Vikings are warriors and whatever. But the status of American Indians and indigenous is alive and today. And it's something that many, 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 many people are very concerned. And, and I like that you brought up the Florida State where I know Florida State as a university has been in talks and stuff like that. I think with a local tribe in Florida, but that still doesn't mean that it's 100% okay. Yeah. And I do respect that they do work with the Seminole tribe. I appreciate that they have that relationship, but yeah, still, it doesn't mean it's okay for everybody. And as we continue, the years continue, I think more and more people will recognize that these mascots, we can have something else be representative of a place rather than the names of tribes or people or, you know, Atlanta as having this conversation. Because once again, I'm happy. Congratulations on winning the World Series. However, I don't need, you know, millions of people to see some faux tomahawk chop being done by massive crowds of different people and just being not representative of a large group of Native Americans. Exactly. And I could easily see how if you flip the conversation on people and you ask them, what's culturally really important to you? And you say, okay, imagine that that whatever you, you think is important, and then it's at a sports arena. And then everybody, no matter what, is just using it crassly, potentially, and that it's really just making money. And then I think a lot of people would be, then they'd start being like, oh, you know, but it's tough because like you said, having that conversation is really step one and it takes a while to get to that. So really, really good. So and you have to have the people be open to that conversation and willing 
to rethink some things that have been their tradition. And I hear that a lot with losing tradition or changing tradition. That seems to be one of the commonalities of wanting to retain names. Well, just because it's your tradition doesn't mean that it still needs to be representative for everyone. And sports traditions are separate than cultural traditions. You know, we should be defined by who we are, who say our ancestors were, who we make ourselves to be. And sports, they're great, but it's what we do today and they don't last. <laughs> and there's nothing against sports and it's nothing against teams and et cetera, et cetera. But what should be important are the people around us, our family, our community, and not just the local, <laughs> the local team who has whatever name. And so this brings me on to the next thing of uh, representation. And on FX, there's reservation dogs, correct? Yes. Can you say a few words about that? Yeah, a really lovely program. Anyone that's listening, please take the time to go to Hulu or FX and watch this. It follows the story of four young high schoolers on the res in Oklahoma and their desire to get out of that reservation life and move to California as kind of the ideal, the Eden and it really tackles in a lot of ways issues facing young Native Americans that live on the reservation. Suicide, alcohol and drug abuse, poverty, you know, retaining one culture, one retaining one's language, one one's medicine. And it does it in a lovely way where there is humor there. And I really appreciate that because as you mentioned, those 30s, 40s, 50s movies, oftentimes American Indians were represented as very stoic as humorless. And that's, of course, not the case. We just uh, oftentimes didn't share the same kind of humor. So now we are seeing things, modern modern takes on the, the modern problems and issues facing people. And it's just a lovely start. And I think we talked about this last time where a criticism of uh, U.S. media culture, it seems like U.S. media has the attention span to really focus on one thing at a time. And so getting more and more representation. So of course, the historic tragedy of slavery, and there's been a very long fight for black rights throughout the country and the history, which is great. There's a growing Hispanic culture, which is gaining more and more representation. But the one thing that has always seemed to have been marginalized, honestly, is American Indian and indigenous uh, representation. Why do you think that is? I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it has to do with sheer numbers. I know groups of people who've grown up and never met anyone who's Native American. We have huge pockets in certain parts of America, but there's other places that representation, that representation's lacking, which is why, once again, it's so important at the toppest level that we have Deb Holland, that we have Chuck Sams, that we have for the third term, U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo, who is doing this fantastic project. She's spearheading the project that is Living Nation, Living Words. And it's an online project where you can look up 47 different Native American poets. You can see where they live and you can have a sampling of their work delivered to you. It's just beautiful that we can have that ability with technology to help maintain cultures and to spread information that it was more difficult to spread in the past. Here in Arizona, uh, there are reservations throughout Arizona. And so just by driving around the state, you will often drive through tribal land. Having that there and that people understand and realize that you're number one, driving through tribal land. <laughs> and number two, originally it was 
all tribal land is something to always think about. It also makes me think about representation where, again, some people discount a lot of things and having conversations with them. But, you know, in the most recent Congress that just came into being this year, 77% of Congress, this is from Pew Research, is white. And U.S. population, as far as white percentage, is 60%. And so white culture or white people are still overrepresented in Congress. Now, it's better than it used to be, where virtually, you know, in the 90s and high 90s was white. Why is it important that in our elected officials, it starts to reflect the actual demographics of the country? Yeah, there's two reasons. First of all, living in a democratic republic, we do want to see the faces of people that look like us that we were raised around. And secondly, diversity has been proven to be better at problem solving. If you have people from different backgrounds, walks of life with living different experiences, when it comes to the problems of our nation, they can do a better job of solving those problems by working together. So we were really fortunate that before Deb Holland became appointed to the Department of Interior, she was one of the two women, Native women in Congress, which was an extraordinary feat for us. Still something that I'm very pleased about in my day and age. Once again, I'd never seen a Native woman in Congress. So that I get to be part of this, I get to see this very, very encouraging. Today, we're speaking with Nicole Nesberg, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe higher education is not one size fits all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Nicole Nesberg. And so you have some other examples of how uh, Indigenous and American Indians are contributing to the larger American culture. Yeah, last month, Native hip-hop artist Fancy Dancer Superman performed at the NBA halftime show for the Oklahoma Thunder. The cast of the Reservation Dogs was there in the audience. And once again, in my lifetime, I get to see fancy dancers, people dancing to Native music in the middle of a sporting event. So this kind of links all the things we've been talking about at the highest level representation, media in the media and on TV representation, sports once again being a major place where people of uh, diverse backgrounds can come together, root for their home team, support each other, and then visually see something maybe they'd never seen before. Probably in the state of Oklahoma, no doubt there's a large representation as that used to be Indian territory until it became the state of Oklahoma. There's a vast amount of Indians that were moved to that land from their native homelands, making it now their homeland. My homeland is, in fact, uh, I'm part of the Sioux tribe of Chippewa Indians, Sioux St. Marie, Michigan, on the border of Sioux St. Marie, Canada. And I have to give a huge shout out when it comes to representation to one of our members, Angeline Bully. She drafted her debut novel, Firekeeper's Daughter, and it is this wonderful coming-of-age story of this 18-year-old, half-white, half-native young woman raised by a white mother and how she learns about her indigenous culture and she becomes a strong Anishinaabe Kwe, an Ojibwe woman, where she understands the relevance of that native traditional medicine to her life. 
if you get a chance when you're done watching Reservation Dogs, <laughs> you know, order her book, rave reviews from NPR, Rolling Stone. These representations, when I was young, I didn't have access to this that you know, this access that's available now. And it's just extraordinary to me. And very, as I said, again and again, encouraging that I get to see this representation developing more and more. And having that representation is so important. And I think for a lot of people whom say are are white and have always been white, <laughs> that sounds funny saying that, but um, they've always had representation. They've always watched media and they've always seen themselves stare back at themselves, if that makes sense. And so having that representation is so extraordinarily important. And luckily, it's becoming more more common to see greater diversity of representation. And that brings me to my next question about tribal schools. In Canada and the US, there's been recent articles, and I guess you can say public discovery of the horrific conditions that were in those schools. Yeah, starting in the 1870s in the United States and in Canada, they started a program of Indian boarding schools where they were trying to, as the man Pratt said, kill the Indian and save the man. So the idea was to assimilate them, take children to these boarding schools, cut off their hair, give them what I would call white names or Christian names, and teach them a skill that could factor into the U.S. culture. Well, the problem being there's still discrimination. And even with that training or that turn, what it did is created just generations of lost children who no longer fit into their tribe, who had lost their language and their culture. And they no longer fit into American society either because they were deprived of that as well because of the color of their skin. Well, we've since found out, especially in the last five and 10 years, the number of deaths at these schools was just extraordinary of these poor children taken away from their parents, oftentimes with the threat of starvation if they didn't allow their children to be taken away, taken away hundreds of miles to never return to their homelands. And these small children graveyards that are being discovered all around these schools Fortunately, for example, Carlisle Indian School, one of the most famous ones, they are now different tribes have have made the effort to bring their children back to their homeland and to exhume those children and bring them home. And so that's an ongoing process. And the, there's going to be greater investigations. Once again, Holland has mentioned further investigations, especially in the United States. Canada has been doing their work and thousands of these graves have been discovered, sadly. It is. It's hard to even verbalize how sad and how tragic that is. If you're going to write a story, if that makes sense, the schools would be the bad guy because these these kids, I mean, they're literally kids taken away from their families and put in the school. And, you know, again, if you flip the narrative of if somebody questions or doesn't feel like, you know, things are as important or people should just get over it, just imagine your kid, your kid being taken from you, put in a school hundreds of miles away and being forced to align to a different culture. Today, it's just gut-wrenching and it's tragic. We need to know the true history and people need to confront that history. We need to accept that history so we can all somehow moved forward together. Because if people continue to deny it, they're denying reality and they're denying the true evils that existed. And it is important to remember that history once again, not to repeat it. This is something that happened and we don't want it to happen again. 
once again, as a mother who you can probably hear my kids in the background, as a mother, definitely it just strikes a chord every time I have to talk about four or five-year-olds being taken from their parents, going to an unfamiliar place, eating unfamiliar food, being given a name, language taken away, the whole process of it. And once again, it's not dead history. There are people that in the 60s and the 70s that endured these boarding schools. There was physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. And it is part of the healing process to have these discussions. Once again, not a pretty part of American history, but definitely a part of our history that has to be discussed. And even if people might say, well, it's, it's not going to happen again. I mean, even if you just look at the border crisis in which some kids were being taken away from their families, that right there, just again, imagine your kid being taken away from you. Any government policy should, of course, there has to be laws et cetera, et cetera. But it has to be presented in a compassionate way, especially when it comes to children. Because if you don't, that's going to scar those children and they are going to have a very negative view <laughs> of the organization that did it to them. And that is the U.S. government. As one should. Once again, those separating of children and parents, I find appalling. Absolutely. I understand there's laws in place. That law does not have to include the separation of, of families. What are some things that can help people have better conversations about uh, American Indian and indigenous topics? Fortunately, one of those things over COVID that was a silver lining is the ability on social media to connect to groups and to connect to people that one hadn't had available before. There's a fantastic Facebook group called Social Distancing Powwow. They just held an online powwow, which one could watch no matter what their background is, you could join this group. People are welcome to join this group. I think for people, you know, an openness, an ability to to learn more, to learn more about others. I'm very fortunate. I live in a community, a county, in a city that has been open in the last many years to knowing more about the indigenous people here. And so part of it is, one, the community wanting to know more. And there also has to also be people like me, though, that do the work to make sure that that information is also available. So it's kind of a two-pronged thing where you need, you know, both the interest there and then somebody to make it accessible for people. And that is great. It reminds me of a podcast I did with Jonathan Hill, where he talked about the online powwows and how that has really brought people together. Jonathan Hill was a, is a musician who really incorporates his indigenous culture into his music. Really great conversation. Any final words, Nicole? Uh, once again, thank you for having me. Anyone out there that's interested in learning more, please get a hold of me. And if you have any questions, any knowledge I can share, I'm happy to share it. Excellent. Thank you so much. And today we're speaking with Nicole Nesberg, Migizi Miguan, about American Indians and representation. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and thank you for listening. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.